Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would open to Haggai, we're going to do Haggai in one session today. If you find the middle of your Bible between the Testaments and you'll be going Malachi, that's the Italian prophet, uh, then before Malachi is uh, Zechariah and then comes Haggai. So that's kind of where we are. This is not Haggis. For those of you that are Scottish, Haggis is not Haggai, although they sound alike. Have you, how many of you ever had Haggis? Nobody's ever had Haggis? So we got, we got two people that have had haggis. Okay, very good. If you've ever had it, you will never, ever, ever forget it. So at any rate, the name Haggai means festival or my feast, which is interesting. This book, book of Haggai, is the second shortest book in the Old Testament of the entire Bible, actually. Only Obadiah is a shorter book. There's only two chapters. We really know nothing about Haggai at all, except that he's a prophet of the Lord, he is the very first prophet sent to Judah after the exile, after they came back from their 70 years of captivity. He's the very first prophet that God sent to have a little talk with them at that point in time. And this book only has two chapters, and there's four messages, four messages from God to his people. And it's the only book in the Bible where every one of the messages are specifically dated by date. So these four prophecies, we know the exact date that they were given. If you look at the first prophecy, which we're going to go through today in chapter 1, the date that was given to Haggai is August 29th, 520 B.C., August 29th. The second message is the first nine verses of chapter 2, and that was given October 17th, so about six, seven, eight weeks later at that point in time. And the third and fourth message found in chapter 2 were both given on the same day, December 18th. So Haggai is very precise about when God said, tell the children of Israel this and this and this and this and the date within which that was supposed to take place. So let me give you a little historical context. You know the nation of Israel had been invaded three times by the Babylonians. The first one was 605 B.C., the second one was 597 B.C., and finally in 586 they sacked the city, destroyed the temple, and carried Judah into exile in Babylon as a result of protracted sin on their part. Now, a number of decades later, in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the Persian conqueror of Babylon, issued a decree that says the Jews can go back to their homeland. This was the 70 years of captivity that God had predicted through Jeremiah. Ezra 1 tells us that only about 50,000 Jews went back to Israel. There were about 2.5 to 3 million Jews that stayed back in Babylon, which they'd been conquered by Persia. So now it's part of the Persian Empire. So only a very small remnant went back home to Jerusalem at that point in time. And Ezra tells the history of that. Ezra 3 says they built the, rebuilt the altar, began offering sacrifices, and within about 24 months they had laid the foundation of the temple. They'd probably laid some of the stone walls because everything was made out of stone. For those of us that have been to Israel, it's a lot of rocks. I mean, there's rocks everywhere. It's amazing they didn't grow anything in that place, right? It's just a lot of rocks. So you build with what you have, right? Stone is very plentiful. Wood is very rare, very scarce. They don't get a lot of rain at that point in time. So they're building the temple, and they get a lot of opposition from the Samaritans who petition, they send lobbyists back to the Persian capital and petition the king of Persia to stop the construction of the temple. 
because the Samaritans who are there on site don't want any competition, right? Because the Jews came back and said, this is our land, and it was, and the Samaritans had been placed there by the Babylonians, and so there was going to be some rivalry at that point in time. So the king of Persia says, stop the building, right? God didn't tell them to stop the building. The king of Persia said, stop the building. And they stopped the building, and they abandoned the temple site for 16 years, right? So for 16 years, this project has been abandoned, and the um, place is covered with dirt and weeds, and it's overgrown, and it's really, really abandoned, and God's not too happy about that. You know, it's easy for us to look and say, what was wrong with these people? God told them to go back and build the temple. They started, and two years later, they quit, and 16, year, 16 years later, they still haven't done anything. And yet, it's very, very true for us, isn't it? Because we tend to do what? We tend to take the path of least, you got it, the path of least resistance. We kind of tend to take the easy way. So God sends Haggai the prophet to come and put a pitchfork in their spinal column and say, you need to get back and build the temple. I told you, get back on task. So has God ever, I guess for us, sent us someone to tell us, get off your backside and get back to what you were supposed to do, right? You've forgotten what you were supposed to do. You got distracted. The Lord is faithful in sending someone to us to tell us that. So here's the key idea. And this is correlated in Matthew 6.33. That's on the board behind me, and Rob has it in the King's English where you can actually read the handwriting on the screen. Put God first in every decision, and he will provide whatever you need. It doesn't say whatever you want. It says whatever you need, yes? Now, who's the one who determines what we need? God determines what we need. He knows what we need more than we know what we need. Okay, let's jump in. Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, it's pretty exact now, remember this is August 29th, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, I'm going to give you some $13 words here, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, let me give you the background here, Darius the first is Darius Hystapes, he became king in 521. 521 B.C., he reigned until 486, all right? He was defeated. This is the king that was defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. Remember the Battle of Marathon? They had the runner that ran 26 miles and then dropped dead after he told them that they had won. The Greeks had actually beaten the Persians. This was the king that got defeated by the Greeks. It's the first day of the sixth month, which is the month Elul, and it's August 29th, 520. For anybody who's been to Israel, what is the weather like in August? It is like Bakersfield, right? You can actually cook stuff on the rocks there. It gets really, really warm. But this is the, this is the first day of the new moon. Now, if you know anything about Israel's festivals, which we're not going to get into, the festival gathered a lot of people to Jerusalem to celebrate, right? So Haggai is speaking God's message to this people, and there's a big crowd on hand because it happens to be the new moon. There's a festival at that point in time. And it says, where did his words come from? What's it say in verse 1? Where did Haggai's words come from? The word of the Lord. Mm. It says the word of the Lord. Haggai is telling you very clearly, this is not my message. 
I did not make this up. This message came from God through me to you. He uses this messenger theme 14 times in a two-chapter book. 14 times he says, the word of the Lord came by me. I didn't write it. God gave you the message. Now that's true in manna as well, because Brad is not near smart enough to say what he says. I'm telling you what God says. It's up to you then to obey it. Okay? So Haggai is saying you should be paying attention because God is speaking, not me. Have you ever noticed that everyone seems to have a very high opinion of their own opinion? <laughs> you would have a high opinion of your opinion too, right? I mean, most people don't say, you shouldn't listen to me because I'm really foolish. I am above average stupid, so don't listen to what I say. Most people say, of course you should listen to me, right? My opinion. Yeah. Here, he, give, it give it some weight. Above average weight, preferably, right? Here's the truth. We should evaluate everybody's opinion by God's word, especially our opinion. We need to check in our opinion under the word of God and say, what does God say about this, right? So the first message from God to the people is not to the people at all. What's it say in verse 1? It says the message is to who? You all have the Bible in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say the message is to? It's to the leaders, right? It's to, it's to Zerubbabel and it's to Joshua. Now, Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiachin. He was the king 70 years ago. So Zerubbabel's in the line of David. He's royalty. He's royalty. He's, the lead. He's a political leader. He's the civic leader. Joshua is a great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, if you will, of Aaron the high priest. So he's the high priest. So you've got the civic and political leadership, and you've got the spiritual leadership, and God's got a message for them to start with. And then he talks to all the people in verse 2. Here's what God says about his people. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, he's talking about the class of manna, and he says, here's your opinion, Judah. He says, this is what the people say. The people say, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now that's an interesting human opinion, right? God's not too impressed with the human opinion there. <clears throat> By the way, it says the Lord of hosts is doing the talking. He uses that phrase a lot in this passage. It literally means the Lord of armies, the Lord of heavenly armies, Lord God Almighty. It's the captain, the, the, the general, if you will, of the heavenly host. He uses that phrase, the Lord of hosts, 14 times. It's, it's interesting. How does God describe Judah? What's the phrase he uses? Thus says the Lord of hosts, blank. He says what? He says, this people, what do you find odd about that? He doesn't say, my people. He says, this people. Now, you know something? We as parents do that all the time. When your kid does something great, you go, my child. When they screw up and you're talking to your spouse, you go, your son did blah, 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 right? I have no genetic material in that one, right? None. But if they do a really good job, we all claim ownership, right? 
God says, this people, not my people. He's rebuking them for disobedience. And here's the principle, and Rob doesn't have this one. I'm making this one up. Disobedience always distances you from God. Write it down. Disobedience always distances you from God. They call themselves his people, but they're not acting like his people. None of you have ever had children who acted like they weren't your children, right? Have you ever said, where did you learn that? I never taught you that. I can't believe you're doing that, right? Most of us in this room did that a number of decades ago to our parents. Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I tell you to do? So what are these people saying? The people are saying the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They're saying it's not the proper time, it's not the correct time, it's not the right time, it's not the convenient time for us to build God's house. So they're making excuses for the sin of procrastination. God had told them to rebuild the temple, and how many years has it been since they did anything? 16. 16 years. You know, if someone says that physical exercise is a priority, and they haven't worked out in 16 years, what would you conclude? Now, somebody says it's not going to happen. Yeah, that's true. What else would you conclude? It's not a priority. It's not a priority, right? We don't worry about what you say. We, we look at what you do. What you do speaks louder. When God tells you to do something and you haven't done anything about it in 16 years, what do we conclude? God's opinion doesn't mean a whole lot to you, right? I mean, if you haven't done anything about it in 16 years, clearly it's not a priority. Here's the principle. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So stop excusing procrastination. I was going to say stop excusing your procrastination, but, you know, our procrastination. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So stop excusing procrastination. Here's one of my favorite definitions of procrastination, or I guess an excuse, rather. Billy Sunday once called an excuse, the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. When you talk to your children or grandchildren, or when people talk to you, and you really don't want to do something, but you don't want to tell them, I ain't going to do it, right? You make an excuse. You give them the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie, like sausage, right? Yeah, yeah. If you knew what went into sausage, you would not eat it. If you ever knew what went into a hot dog, you would understand that it's stuffed with a lie, too. They actually tell you that's good stuff in there, and it ain't good stuff for you. Benjamin Franklin once said, I never knew a man that was good at making excuses that was good at anything else. Do not become expert at making excuses. It won't fly. Sooner or later, people go, you know, when they talk, you got to divide it in half and divide it in half again. And even then, you're 10 miles from the truth, right? Don't make excuses. <laughs> but they've been doing it for 16 years. I know God told us to build the temple, but, you know, it's just not a convenient time. They've gotten a new normal. They've adjusted to life without worship. Daily life has got them busy and distracted and disobedient. And 16 years later, they've completely forgotten sight of their original passion and their original purpose. By the way, 
So it happens to marriages all the time. When we first start to date, man, we are eager to impress, right? We put our best foot forward. We actually commit fraud when we date. <laughs> we do. We actually let that person think that this is what is normal. It ain't normal at all. You normally don't clean up anywhere near that good. Right? Right? Man, we express our tender, loving care. You know, we buy flowers. We write. We call. We text. We send cards like we mean them. We go out to dinner. We dream about our love. We can't even sleep. That's because you're young, you know. However, I just read a recent survey that couples begin to take each other for granted. How long do you think it takes a married couple to begin to take each other for granted? Two years, six weeks? <laughs> six months. Six months, okay. Wow, where's June? One year. Any other bets? It's actually three and a half years. It's about three and a half years. Here's how we know. In three and a half years, the couple stop saying, I love you. They stop saying, please and thank you. They begin to eat dinner at different times. They choose their smartphone instead of having a conversation. By the way, you cannot have a conversation and have a smartphone on at the same time. Because your conversation partners know you are a liar. Yes, dear. Yep. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. You know, we used to think the remote was distracting. No, 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 no. If you want to have an honest conversation with someone you care about, put the phone away. I have a friend of mine who just told me this is very common practice among some people. When you have lunch with a bunch of friends, you put all your phones at the center of the table. First one that picks their phone up buys lunch for everybody. Now, that's a pretty good strategy. You pile all the phones in the center of the table. Some of you should do that at the dinner table at your house. All the phones go to the center of the table. First one that answers the phone buys dinner, right? Cleans, does the dishes, yeah. How about clean the whole house, right? But anyway, they choose their smartphone over conversation. They choose sleep over sex, hard to believe. They stop dating each other. They get casual about their appearance. Read sloppy. They don't shave their face or their legs, right? <laughs> we begin taking each other for granted because we assume that love will survive their laziness. Now, here's the principle. Love cannot survive laziness. Write it down. Or selfishness. Love thrives on sacrificial service. That's not just true in your marriage, it's true with your love for Jesus Christ. Love cannot survive laziness or selfishness, but it thrives on sacrificial service. The reality is no one wants to be taken for granted. Everybody wants to be special. But we take each other for granted because it's the path of least resistance, right? Ultimately, human beings at core are selfish. Yes? Selfish. Because it takes effort to love someone else. And if you value your relationships, you will have to discipline your selfishness. Selfishness kills relationships. These Jewish exiles had taken God for granted. They had taken their love for God for granted. And they let his house lay in ruins. And the problem wasn't even the building. It's their heart. Their heart was indifferent. Their relationship with God was not a priority. I've talked to, I can't tell you how many people who said, I can't believe that our relationship just fell apart. 
We've said in this class over and over again, you can neglect any relationship to death. By the way, anything you neglect ultimately will go away. If you neglect it long enough. Whatever it happens to be, neglect your body. Sooner or later, it's going to go away. Your health is going to go away, right? I mean, you have to take care of it. That's called maintenance at that point. God had an opinion about how they were treating him. Go to verse 3. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, So the human people there have an opinion. It's not a convenient time to do what God told us to do. By the way, obedience is seldom convenient. Have you noticed that obedience usually is not convenient? God has a word for them that's directly opposite to that. He says the people said it's not time to rebuild, and God says get up and rebuild. Verse 4, God says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? God says, number one, you're being inconsistent. Number two, you're being indifferent. It's not time to build God's house, right? But they certainly made time to build your own house. In 16 years, you've really built your house. By the way, paneled houses. Only very wealthy people in that day could panel a house, right? What they did is they used cedar paneling to finish the walls and the ceilings. It's almost like wainscoting, you know, done in up, upscale houses. This, uh, paneling was, was not done in every house. Most houses were made of rocks, just rocks. And you would use the paneling on the interior and the roof to finish off that house at that point in time. So it's okay for God's house to be covered with weeds and abandoned, but my house, I gotta have the finished carpenter come in and panel my house, right? God says your priorities are all screwed up here at that point. You prioritize your house and you procrastinate my house. You ever notice we do that as people? I have talked to more people that go, you know, I, we, we need to get back with God. We need to get back in church, etc. But, you know, my family comes first. And we're going to the lake. I'm not against the lake. Go to the lake. Go skiing. Go whatever it happens to be. But family does not come before God. Amen? Where's your family come from? They're a gift from God in the first place. So don't make an idol out of them. By the way, I'm on my hobby horse now. But there are a lot of parents that worship at the altar of their children. And that is pitiful. If you worship your children to the point where you can't paddle their backside, you got a problem. Right? God comes first. These people had put themselves above God, which is exactly the opposite of King David. King David said in Psalm 27, 4, if you're looking for a cross-reference, Psalm 27, 4, One thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and the meditate in his temple. The number one priority in David's life was knowing God, worshiping God. Nothing else took priority over that. These people had neglected God to the point where they abandoned his house. They allowed it to go desolate. Desolate here means it's like a river drying up. It's like a river drying up. It implies that the house of God was not inhabited, it was neglected, it was falling apart, right? It's like that old PG&E station at, at um, the one they blew up. Coffee, Coffee, right? How many years, how many decades did that thing sit there? 30. Probably 30 years from the time it stopped being used. We, I moved here in 85 and I think they just shut it down in 83 or 84 and they finally took it down when 30 years later, right? It hadn't been used for years and years and years and years and years and years. What it means that people 
were not worshiping God and they were procrastinating, which means they were disobeying. By the way, procrastination steals more than time. You notice that? Procrastination is very, very expensive. Procrastination takes our good intentions and turns them into weapons of mass destruction. Here's some examples. I know I need to call my physician and schedule my annual physical, but I'll do it when my schedule clears up. When is your schedule going to clear up? When you get sick. Well said. Very well said. People, when they get sick, they call a physician. How many people have you ever talked to that said, I'm going to begin my diet today? I'll begin my diet after the holidays. Then I'll really need it, right? I mean, you know. I, I'll get back to school and finish my training, whatever it is, next semester, right? Next semester. I know we need to get, get back to church. We'll get back when the kids are done with their sports. When are the kids done with their sports? Never. Never. Then the grandkids will be busy with their sports. <laughs> See, here's the point. Drifting is the default mechanism of life. Drifting is where we all default to unless we make specific choices otherwise. Drifting happens naturally. If you don't pursue a goal, you will drift away from it. And drifting always takes you what direction? Downstream or upstream? When you drift, you will drift downstream. I have never drifted into a goal. Ever. I've always had to row if I wanted to get to a goal, right? Have you noticed that you never drift towards God? You always drift away from God? That's what they were doing. God has a word for their hypocrisy and selfishness. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, what does your scripture say right after that? Thus says the Lord of hosts what? Consider your ways. Consider says, pay attention. Pay very close attention. Reflect on your priorities. Take a look where you're going. And by the way, ways there means path or journey. Consider your ways. You know what he's telling them? He's saying, why did you leave Babylon in the first place? Why did you leave Babylon in the first place and come here? Wasn't it to build the temple? That was the whole point of the trip. I mean, they had houses and land in Babylon. They sure weren't coming back for that. The whole purpose of coming back was to reestablish the worship of God in Jerusalem. And they had spent 16 years building their houses and farms, but they had forgotten the number one priority. Boy, that is like us. Instead of prioritizing God's work, they had pursued their own work. Look at verse 6. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to be drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Wow. God says, here's the consequences of building your own house and neglecting my house. Here's the principle. Self-centeredness steals God's blessings from your own life. You rob yourself. These people were stealing from themselves. God wanted to bless them. God wanted to give them good crops. God wanted to give them prosperity. But their self-centeredness was stealing that away. 
See, God not only understood their problems, God was engineering their problems. Right? God was creating problems for the very purpose of drawing them back to himself. Normally, diligent work produces what? When you work hard, you get, you get results, you get abundance, you get big crops, etc., etc. That's the law of cause and effect. But God was short-circuiting that because they had failed to complete God's work. So God was blessing them with skimpy crops and continual hunger and not enough clothing and lots of inflation. What's Dr. Phil's famous line? How's it working for you? God's saying, how's it working for you? How's being self-centered working for you? How's neglecting my house working for you? You know, what did we say last week? When you're in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. I know it sounds obvious, but we keep doing more of what fails. Right? Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like our government. It sounds like our citizens that elect the government, right? We're the ones who keep sending people back to office to do more of the same. So we need to take a look and say, maybe we need to. Here's what you do. If it's not working, you don't ask Dr. Phil. You ask God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to change, right? Now, in the middle of those circumstances, God sends them a message through Haggai, and he asks them twice. He says to them twice, right, in two verses. Consider your ways in verse 7. Consider your ways. He's saying, take an inventory. Take an inventory. It, it, are you, any of you familiar with AA at all? AA is one of the most fantastic programs. By the way, this, it's self-help. I'm not, I'm not going to get on that side of it. But one of the key things for AA, step four, I think it is, is you take an inventory. Take an inventory of everybody that your addiction has harmed. And that's a big list for folks that are addicts, because I have some friends who are doing that, right? It says, evaluate your priorities. Do some self-examination. When you are lost behind the wheel of your car, consider your path and do what? Ask directions. Do you know what we do in America? We double our speed. I'm lost. Let's get there quicker. Right? Even if we're going a direction, we have no idea where it is. By gum, we're making time. Well, you might be doing 90 miles an hour the wrong direction. This is a male malady, right? I mean, it's us. Guys, we don't ask directions. And if, and it, you, know, if you have a GPS, you start arguing with Siri. You know? She obviously doesn't know where I am, right? Yeah, you, nobody does, right? It's true. <laughs> Before you spend money on a major purchase, consider your budget, right? Consider, just a thought, when you're cutting firewood with an axe, occasionally stop and make sure the blade is still sharp, right? Sharpen the blade up. You know, when someone is clueless, what do we say they need? You know, when someone's clueless, we say they need what? A reality check, right? A reality check. We all, we all know people that live in their own world. You know anybody that lives in their own world? We all do. Yeah, to some degree, that's true. What Israel needs is a spiritual reality check. We all need a regular checkup to see what's really going on. You know, we go for an annual physical 
to evaluate the real state of our health. Because have you noticed you can feel okay, but you can be very sick and not know it, right? That's the same thing that's going on with these people. They were not well on the inside, but they thought they were. There are some circumstances I have found that God makes it easy to do a checkup for. When I was uh, 27, I was snow skiing in Lake Tahoe and I shattered my left ankle in about six pieces. And uh, I had eight months of physical therapy. You know something? God gave me lots of time to consider my ways. Sometimes the biggest enemy of actually sitting down and considering your ways is our busyness. It's our pace. I've thought about putting some serious money on the table for anybody that could turn off their iPhone for a week. But you know something, 20 years ago, all of you lived very good lives without them. How is it that we can't live without them today? How is it that some people can't turn the iPhone off for an hour? How is it that some people have to have the thing on their nightstand? I'm fascinated to coin a word, right, John? Right? <laughs> Consider your ways. Let me give you an idea. I think everybody needs a daily time of study and silence where it's just you and God. Nobody else. No phone. If you want a spiritual reality check, if you want to consider your ways, you know what you do? You go before God and you say, Lord, search me and know my heart. What, am I, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to teach me? Not what am I going to tell you to do, right? Oh, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But Lord, what do you want to tell me? Right? Now, for your checkup to do any good, you actually got to act on it. Verse 8. God says, okay, consider your ways, figure out your direction, figure out what's not working and why. And by the way, now I want you to do something. Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased and I may be glorified. After you've considered your ways, now take action. After you know what you're doing wrong, start doing right. If, you neglect, if you've been neglecting physical exercise and you know you need to start working out, you do what? You start working out, right? Talking about it's not going to help. He gave them very specific commands. The, the temple was made out of stone. It was abandoned. It was overgrown. And they needed to go get wood and finish the paneling. Here's what you don't know. Ezra 3.7, write that down, tells us that when Cyrus the Great told the Jews to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple, he also granted them cedar timbers from Lebanon to finish the temple. They had beautiful cedar timbers already from Lebanon to finish the temple. The big question is, in 16 years, what have those people done with all that imported wood? They had done it in their own houses. They'd taken the wood that God had intended to go in his temple, and they'd stolen it from God and paneled their own houses. See, the wood wasn't the issue. The issue was that they cared more about themselves than they cared about God. So God tells them, go to the mountains, cut fresh wood, right? They hadn't cut any wood there in 70 years, so there was wood to cut. Get the building ready for God to move into. You know, what do you normally do when you have a baby coming home from the hospital? What hopefully you've already done before the baby comes home to your house 
You have a room, we call that what? A nursery, and we've kind of prepared it for the baby, right? And for the mom. Today, God doesn't need a building to have a relationship with us. Where does God live? In our hearts. Our hearts are his home. But many folks have a heart that has been as spiritually neglected and overgrown with weeds as this temple was. How many of you have ever seen the TV series Hoarders? Hoarders. These people live in houses. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's very instructive. That are literally stuffed with trash, useless and even harmful things, and they compulsively value that which harms them. Right? They hang on to it. They can't get enough of it. You look at them and say, it's almost like you went down to the dump, got a truckload and brought it back into your house instead of taking the junk out of your house to the dump. Right? It looks backwards. It is backwards, right? They haven't been able to clean up their own house themselves. Right? The whole show is we need to get help for you so you can get your house cleaned up and get back on the right track to get well. Our hearts are like these hoarders. Our hearts are generally have way too much junk in them, valueless stuff and even harmful stuff. And just like these helpless hoarders, we can't clean up our own hearts, can we? The good news is, is that you don't have to clean your own heart, heart up so Jesus can move in. You just invite Jesus in and let him <laughs> clean up your heart for you, right? You know, and we say, well, that's at the moment of salvation. You know something? Does Jesus need to do regular cleanup work on your heart? Because we accumulate harmful things in our heart every week, right? The junk of this world finds its way into our house. The junk of the spiritual world finds its way into our heart. And Jesus needs to clean us up daily. Get rid of the junk. God's telling him, this is a picture. Clean my temple up so I can move in. Invite me into your heart and I'll clean you up. Now, God not only tells them what they should do, he tells them why. Look at verse 9. He says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to what? When you bring it home, what do I do with it? I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. See, these people were very hard workers. They were very hard workers, and when you work hard on the farm, you should be able to expect an abundant crop, right? I mean, you're working hard. These people are working 18 hours a day. I mean, they're out there. They're not lazy. But all their hard work is producing nothing. Nothing. And the problem wasn't their work ethic. It was their spiritual indifference. So God had begun to help them consider their ways by withholding his blessing. Have you ever noticed that we learn very little from our successes? When you're highly successful at something, what do you conclude? I'm brilliant. <laughs> I got one honest man in the room, right? When you're really successful at something, you look in the mirror and you go, hey, c'est moi. My mama didn't raise no fool, right? This ain't my first rodeo, right? I mean, we take credit. That's what we do. So God in his mercy sometimes blesses us with 
failure. Wow. How can God's blessing give us failure? Verse 10, it says, Folks, because of you neglecting me and pursuing your own stuff, what has happened? The sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its products. See, the dry season was between April and October. If you go to Israel, you get rain really in October, November, and you get rain in, in, in February, March, March, April. And then you have six months of dry season. So you got two sets of rains, the early rain, the latter rain. In that dry season, if you did not get very heavy morning dew, you're gonna lose your crops because they didn't exactly have rain for rent, right? There was no irrigation per se, not a lot. You depended on the rain, right? God says, I'm withholding the dew. I've wondered that if we would ever see Governor Brown declaring a statewide day of confession and prayer to God because of the drought. Be interesting to see. Go to verse 11. God says to Israel, I called for a drought on your land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. He says, I'm calling for a drought on the water, on the grain, on the wine, and the oil. You know something? If you don't have those things, what are you going to do? You're going to starve, right? Here's the principle. God can help us consider our ways by blessing us with the discipline of drought. And I'm not just talking about water, although that's a piece of it. God is designing a physical drought for their spiritual benefit. They had forgotten that in the end, it's not their effort that produces the results. It's the blessing of God that produces the results. When the drought comes, most of us, number one, complain. And number two, we do what? God send rain. <clears throat> Folks, the problem in California is not water. We don't have a problem with not enough water. Do you know God has no problem with water? If God wanted to bring a Pineapple Express here in July, do you think he could do it? Yeah, we don't have a problem with water. God doesn't have any limits. We have a problem with our hearts. We have neglected him. We don't even think he causes the rain anymore. You don't ever talk to anybody in power saying, maybe we should pray for rain. I have never heard a politician in years say, we need to get on our knees and pray for rain. We don't think God has anything to do with the rain. Now, if you're God and you control the weather and those people think you don't have anything to do with the rain, that's insulting. Oh, where do you think the rain comes from? Oh, weather just happens. Oh, yeah, the world just turns on its axis, and it's right at the correct angle, right? We're just the right distance from the sun, you know, all these coincidences. If you're God, you got to be saying, maybe you need a little more drought so you'll get some sense. Maybe a little thirst is a blessing so you'll be coming back to me, the source of your life. So Haggai does his message. He tells, God, tells God's message straight up. He doesn't mince words, and he doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, thus says the Lord. This is one of the few times in Scripture 
where a prophet actually has people that respond to him instantly. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, what did they do? It said they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. When God speaks, folks, the only acceptable response is obedience because his commands are not negotiable. They're not optional, and there's no alternative. A British pastor uh, named Jeffrey Studdart Kennedy once said, I love this line, Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. You know one of the most beautiful things about obedience to God is? When I obey God, the consequences of my obedience are His problem, not mine. When I disobey God, are there consequences? You know something? I'm responsible for those consequences because I chose to disobey. But when you choose to obey God, any consequences that come from your obedience, that's His problem. He'll take care of it because I did what I was supposed to do. It says that these leaders led in obedience, which is a good thing to lead in, by the way. And in verse 13, God gives them an affirmation. Verse 13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying what? What's it say? I am with you, declares the Lord. Here's the principle. Obedience always draws us closer to God. Obedience always draws us closer to God. See, when you obey God, you begin moving the same direction He moves, right? You're not moving against Him, you're moving with Him at that point, and He assures that His presence is with them. See, here's the point. If God is with you, no one can successfully oppose you. And you are destined to ultimately succeed. If God is not with you, no one can successfully assist you. And you're ultimately destined to fail. There is no greater comfort in, in life than knowing that God is with you. None. None. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Jarbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and they came, and what did they do? They did what? They actually worked on the house. They actually brought the wood. They actually did what God told them to do. Have you found that there's nothing like just doing what God says? Why is it so hard for us just to do what God says? Why do we think we're smarter than Him? Right? I mean, at this stage of life, we're not smarter than we think we are. I mean, you know, we're starting to forget more than we remember. But somehow we think we can tell God we know what's best. Amazing. Amazing. They actually obeyed. They actually worked on the house. And God actually blessed them, just like He said He would. Okay, here's the summary. I'm going to review the key points. You can write them down or take notes. Here's the key idea. Matthew 6.33, by the way, is the cross-reference up here. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? Put God first in every decision. Now, here's the application. Are you going to have decisions to make this week? How many of you have decisions to make this week? Every one of those decisions, you've got a choice. Am I going to do it my way or am I going to do it God's way? I can tell you that you will probably do it your way. Do you know how I know that? Because you will not ask for wisdom before you make the decision. You'll just make the decision. 
If you make the decision without asking his advice, what are you saying? I don't need your advice, God. I am plenty capable of handling this. I would suggest that that's folly. I would suggest that if we asked his opinion more, by the way, before we make the decision, as opposed to after it screws up and blows up in our face, we can save a lot of grief, right? You leave it all the skin on your body instead of on the asphalt. So put God first in every decision. He will provide for whatever you need. Number two, delayed obedience is disobedience. So stop excusing procrastination. Number three, Love cannot survive laziness or selfishness. It thrives on sacrificial service, not just in a relationship earthly, but most importantly, your divine relationship with God. Number four, self-centeredness steals God's blessings from your own life. You rob yourself. Have you ever noticed that selfish people sometimes have the most pathetic lives? They're running after me, 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 me. It's all about me. And you look at their life and you go, huh, why would I want this? This is lonely, this is isolationist, you're angry with everybody. Get over the selfishness. Number four, God can help us consider our ways by blessing us with the discipline of drought. So sometimes if there's drought in your life, it's a call to come back, get on your knees, ask God, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to learn? And number five, obedience always draws us closer to God. Okay? Got enough to work on this week? All right. As Nancy says, now that you know, go and do. I love you. Next week, Malachi, otherwise known as Malachi. <laughs>